Well, good morning, church. What an incredible time of worship as we gather together. I, I want to just say I, I just love that this morning is, is full of this music, and I can't thank all of you enough who uh, participated and contributed to this incredible worship for us. Uh, just, I, I know I speak on behalf of everyone else. Thank you so much for the way that you use your time and your talents, and for everybody else to know, these individuals put hours into this. They were here for hours yesterday morning, early this morning, hours ahead of time preparing. So thank you so much for blessing us. You really did. And uh, more, more than anything, the Lord received the glory. Um, and I, I just, you know, I realize that worship is more than song, but I do believe this one thing with all of my heart that the lifting up of praise to our God through song is one of our most powerful confessions. Would you agree? I mean, just think about this with me. I mean, singing is often associated with joy. Not always, but often. I mean, very rarely are we singing when we're not feeling good, uh, when we're injured, uh, when we're going through a really hard time. And this is what I mean by singing is often associated with joy. And to sing in a state of weariness is a powerful testimony of the greater hope and the greater peace that resides within our hearts. We live in the midst of a fallen world. We live in a world where sin invades our life daily. Not just that, but the suffering that sin causes invades our life daily, and yet we sing. We sing because we know what God has done for us in Jesus. We sing because the enemy of death has been defeated. We sing because we have been transferred from a domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We sing because all the old things have passed away and behold, he is making all things new. We sing because he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We sing because he first loved us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles with me and join me in turning to another Old Testament prophet, a minor prophet, not less significant, just shorter. That's what that minor prophet means. We're going to look at Zephaniah chapter 3 this morning. Now you're probably thinking, man, pastor's putting us in some really weird books here we got to find each Sunday. Zephaniah is not that hard, though. Remember last week, we were in Malachi. That was the last book of the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew in the New Testament, just go back one page, that's Malachi. Zephaniah has three books more to the left. Okay, that, that helps you find it. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 20, a sermon. This is so great that this morning is all about joy and music. Our sermon today is titled, Joy Sings Over You. And I think it's one of the most beautiful images in all of Scripture, that the Lord sings over you, with shouts of joy. And this is my prayer for you today, that you would hear in your heart the song of God and the great pleasure that he has for you. Zephaniah 3, 14 reads this, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart. So in other words, sing. Let this be a powerful confession. And why? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. And in that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. 
He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. And behold, I am going to deal at that time with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at that time, I will gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Our great God and Father, you who are worthy of this praise, the giver of such good things that you have cleared away our enemies, you have removed the judgment against us. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in the gift of your son, Jesus, and the hope of eternal life through the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for all that you have done for us and now through us. It's in your mighty name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Zephaniah is uh, an incredible book. Uh, in order to try to give a little bit of a summary, one of the best things I can say is that Zephaniah, like all the prophets, especially the minor prophets, is an awesome book. It's an awesome book in that it contains both a word of judgment, but especially a word of promise. And one of the ways that characterizes this most is that in the book of Zephaniah, more than in any other Old Testament book, is this use of the expression, the day of the Lord. Zephaniah uses it more than anyone else, uh, we see, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 14, if you want to just quickly scan there yourself, in chapter 1, verse 14, we see that the great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. We see in the next verse, verse 15, that this day is a day of wrath and destruction, of gloom and desolation. And in chapter 1, verse 17, we're told that this day is appointed because they have sinned against the Lord. And so the day of the Lord really represents a calling to an account, an account that demands repentance and humility because of the coming judgment of God. But there's something else really important that Zephaniah teaches us, and it's the important lesson that God is a God of great patience and mercy. And I say that because the people of Judah to whom Zephaniah is writing, he was a prophet in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. And his ministry occurred during the days of Josiah, who was a good king. And yet we also know that Zephaniah grew up, and during his earlier years, he grew up at a time that Judah had some really bad kings. Kings like Manasseh and his son Ammon. And in this environment, Zephaniah's life was formed by a cultural environment that was full of idolatry and child sacrifice, to name a few things. And it was from this that the people of Judah, in following the lead of these wicked kings, they had offended God in every conceivable way. Idolatry, false worship, murder, child sacrifice, irreverence, sexual immorality, deceit, and on and on we could go. And for decades, God had endured the insults of his people. They, they mocked him through their irreverence and unrighteousness. But God will not be mocked. As Paul in the New Testament will say in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
And what we learn is that Judah had sowed seeds of sinful rebellion and they would in turn reap the harvest of God's judgment. This is the day of the Lord. But see, this is where our passage this morning is so beautiful and this image of God singing over us is so profound that with all of this darkness collapsing down upon the people of God, literally this would come in the form of God's judgment through the the nation, the Babylonian Empire. It's in the midst of this that God is going to do something so marvelous that it will cause his people to sing with joy unbounded. Now, one of the important elements within a lot of prophetic writings is that they often take on a telescope effect. So I want to invite all of you to kind of think about that imagery with me for just a moment. And what I mean by this is that the Lord is speaking through these messengers like Zephaniah, and he's calling out what is and what is to come. So imagine with me, you're standing on a hillside, think the old west or colonial days or something like that, and you're on a hillside and you're, you're looking out and with your eye, you see the dust cloud forming and, and the movement of riders approaching. And then with a telescope, as you look, you see the same thing, but only now the riders appear with greater focus and clarity. It's the same thing, being seen in two different ways. This is the prophetic word of Zephaniah. You see, the image of the impending judgment, this day of the Lord, was a dust cloud on the horizon being formed by what would be the eventual destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And in our passage today, as we just read there in chapter 3, the image of rejoicing and of deliverance and of peace was a dust cloud on the horizon being formed by the eventual return from Babylon and their 70 years in exile. But then with our telescope, we now see the day of the Lord and the future promise with greater focus and clarity. We can read these words from Zephaniah and discern that this prophetic word was not only for Israel, but they belong to us as well. That a day occurred when God was going to keep his promises to the Jewish people. We now know, as history records, that an edict was delivered by King Cyrus of Persia in 538 BC. And the people of God indeed returned home from exile. It was a moment worthy of celebration and rejoicing. But another day is coming, friends. Another day is coming when God will keep his promise to return. As Revelation 1, 7, 8 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, the telescope of God's prophetic word brings clarity and focus. The justice of God will bring a day of wrath. And the righteousness of God will bring a day of rejoicing. And so as we think about this, I have two points I want to share with us this morning. Really, two reasons why, in the midst of a weary world, we can still rejoice. And it has everything to do with the song of joy that God sings over you. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you 
with shouts of joy. Thanks be to God. Our first point this morning, uh, God sings a song of righteousness over you. If you look at verse 14, some of these will be in the screen, some won't, so let me encourage you to take a look at your Bible. But if you look at verse 14 again, it says this, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout a triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart. In other words, there is a reason to sing. And in the midst of all of our troubles and fears or concerns, there is always a reason to sing. And the reason here is stated plainly in verse 15. It has to do with the song he sings over us. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. The Lord has cleared away your enemies. You see, friends, this is a song of righteousness because God has made possible what is impossible for us. I mean, just consider the emphasis. I love the emphasis that we have here in verse 15, not only on the past tense, what has occurred, but on the subject matter of who has done it. The Lord has. Do you see that there in verse 15? The Lord has. You see, if Zephaniah, in this very brief study, teaches us anything, it's that no matter who you are or what you have been given, in the case of Israel, it could be land, like the nation they received. It could be authority, like a king. Or it could even be religion itself, like the priesthood. No matter who you are or what you have been given, nothing in this world can ever change the condition of your soul. I mean, if you go to chapter 1 again, quickly in verse 8, we are told here that he will punish the princes, the king's sons. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your royalty or your heritage or what even other people think about you. Verse 9. I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. In other words, the story of Judah is the story of our hearts. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have been given. And for the Jews in the days of Zephaniah, their judgment and their enemy was expulsion from the land by the Babylonians, but with our telescope, the real judgment that God has taken away, the real enemy that God has cleared away is our sin, which leads to death. You see, the Bible tells us in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. This is the great judgment and the final enemy before all of us. As Hebrews 9, 27 reads, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So when Jesus fulfilled the first advent and he broke into human history as a, as a tiny baby, he came to make possible what was impossible for us. You see, God knew he's omniscient, he knows all things, but what was confirmed time and time again through the lives of the nation of Israel was that no matter who you are, no one could live or ever satisfy the standards of a holy God. That what we see throughout the nation of Israel and all the pleasures and gifts they were given in relationship with God, still they could not live up to his standards. And we are a corrupt people. We are a corrupt people because we live with a heart in ruin. Sin has ravaged us from the inside out. 
This is why, like in Isaiah 64, verse 6, we are told that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You see, the best of my efforts are all marked and mired by a corruptible heart. Everything I do is affected in some way by my sin. Everything. Now, let me give you just a, a quick example. I love my family. I love my wife. I believe my love for them is genuine and pure. And by all worldly accounts, by every measurable standard of any view in this room today, you could confidently say, if you examine my life, I am a good husband. I am a good father. But even in the goodness of, let's say, my love for my wife, the seed of sin is present. You see, I give to my wife my love selflessly and sacrificially. I do all that I can to love her just as Christ loves the church, his bride, selflessly and sacrificially. But the sin in my heart also reveals a selfish motivation. You see, I want something in return. I give of myself completely and thoroughly. And even if it was to be categorized as nothing more than a single percent out of 99, I still would like to admit to all of you that I often do what I do, and when I do it, I begin to question and wonder, well, now what about me? Where's my attentive ear? Where's my physical hug? Where's my time or word of affirmation? What about me? And if I don't get something in return, I can become bitter and upset. This sin is my selfishness being exposed. And my simple point in all of this is to expose us to the reality that even in our standards of good, and you all might say, you're a good husband, Jared. You're a good father. That even in our own standards of good, we still operate within this filthy garment of sin. I am a man that is cloaked in unrighteousness. And no matter what I do to get to God, if left to myself, God will always be able to judge the motivation of my heart as impure. It's why, for instance, when the rich young ruler talked to Jesus and said, hey, good teacher, Jesus responded and said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Jesus wasn't turning him aside saying, don't call me that. He was just simply saying, you must be acknowledging that I am really God because no one is really good. All of us on our own operate to some extent out of a sinful seed. And only one is genuinely good. You and I, we look at the outward appearance of man, 1 Samuel 16. And on that outward appearance, you think, Jared's a good guy. But the Lord looks at the heart. And even if it's 1% that is corruptible and in ruin, that is a chasm that is an eternity wide in the eyes of a holy God. On my own, I have nothing good to offer him. So I rejoice this morning. I rejoice this morning. I rejoice in the midst of a weary world where sin is ever present because in all of this, I hear the song of God in my heart and it is a song of righteousness. 
that the Lord has become righteousness for me. As 2 Corinthians 5, 21 reads, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's in Christ, friends. And it's my faith in Christ that allows me to stand before God blameless and beyond reproach, not because of anything good in me. I am a, I am a man in ruin, but because of everything that exists in me, which is Christ. See, Jesus took on flesh and lived like us in every way, but he was unlike us in every way, in that he perfectly fulfilled all the expectations of our holy God. Thus, he was able to present himself to God as blameless. And in doing this, Jesus, Jesus was able to satisfy the wrath of God and to consume the judgment of sin and death once and for all. There is joy in the righteousness that God gives us in Jesus. He has cleared away our enemies, Zephaniah 3.15. And the resurrection of Christ is our victory over the judgment of death. Finally, the second song we hear, God sings a song of promise. In our last point, I highlighted the significance of the past tense action of the Lord that he has taken away, he has cleared away. In this final point, I love the emphasis of the future tense. If you look at verses 19 and 20 with me, six times, six times in these two verses, we hear the Lord God say, I will, I will. And not only this, but when we look at the beginning of verse 19 and verse 20, we also hear God say, at that time. Friends, there is a time to come in which God will. He will, he will gather those who grieve. He will save the lame. He will turn our shame into praise. He will bring us in and he will give us renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. This is the song of promise. He sings over you today, God will. And the imagery that Zephaniah presents to us is a God in the role of shepherd that God is gathering us. He's bringing us near to his promises. He's going to restore everything back to its original form and beauty. Peter describes this well in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And so again, friends, like that telescope of God's righteous rule, a day is coming, a day is coming when more than just land will be restored, like Judah received after the exile, but a day is coming when all of heaven and earth will be restored. Listen to what Peter writes, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He sings this over you. The grace of God is truly amazing. It's truly amazing. We have as a precious gift, the very word of God that proclaims such promises to us. I love this quote from D.L. Moody in which he says, when I pray, I talk to God. When I read the Bible, God talks to me. And God is speaking to us, just like in Zephaniah, chapter one, verse one, chapter three, verse 20, says the Lord. This is a word of the Lord. 
And God is speaking to us today, and he continues to speak to us, not only in his word, but in his son Jesus. Like we read in John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will. I will. I will come again and receive you to myself, just like Zephaniah 3.20. I'm going to bring you and I'm going to gather you in like a righteous shepherd. And I'm going to receive you to myself, the righteous king. And where I am, I am in your midst. You may be also. I want to invite our orchestra to come up and prepare us in another beautiful song of worship. But friends, as they come forward, we have no reason no reason to doubt the promises of God. Let me say that to you again. We have no reason to doubt the promises of God. Why? Because history is full of the testimony of God's loving kindness that endures throughout the generations from the promise of God in Genesis 3.15 that a child will come who will crush the head of the serpent to the promises of God that would lead his people from captivity in Egypt and through the wilderness wanderings and ultimately out of exile in Babylon. God has always been with his people, gathering his people back to himself. And in this season of Christmas, we extend the telescope of God's promises. And we see with even greater clarity and focus the beauty of God's gift to us in Jesus. He is the song. God sings over us, and we rejoice with gladness, friends. We have every reason to sing, because in our heart, we know the song of God, that in Christ, we have the promise of a righteousness that will last forever. We sing.